Good morning. Today's scripture reading is from the book of Luke, chapter 2, verses 1 through 20, be found on page 857, your pew Bible. Luke 2, verses 1 through 20. Please stand if you are able for the reading of God's word. In those days, a decree went out from Caesar Augustus that all the world should be registered. This was the first registration when Quirinius was governor of Syria, and all went to be registered, each to his own town. And Joseph also went up from Galilee, from the town of Nazareth to Judea, to the city of David, which is called Bethlehem, because he was of the house and lineage of David, to be registered with Mary, his betrothed, who was with child. And while they were there, the time came for her to give birth. And she gave birth to her firstborn son and wrapped him in swaddling cloths and laid him in a manger because there was no place for them in the inn. And in the same region, there were shepherds out in the field, keeping watch over their flock by night. And an angel of the Lord appeared to them And the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were filled with great fear. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign for you. You will find a baby wrapped in swaddling cloths and lying in a manger, And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of the heavenly host praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. When the angels went away from them into heaven, the shepherds said to one another, Let us go over to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has made known to us. And they went with haste and found Mary and Joseph and the baby lying in a manger. And when they saw it, they made known the saying that had been told them concerning this child. And all who heard it wondered at what the shepherds told them. But Mary treasured up these things, pondering them in her heart. And the shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all they had heard and seen as it had been told them. Amen. Well, Merry Christmas. It's good to be with you all this morning. If you're visiting with us, it's good to have you here. Uh, my name's Ron. I'm one of the pastors. Uh, I'm going to pray for us, and then we'll, we'll dive right in this morning. Father, we thank you for your word. We thank you for what we get to celebrate this morning. We thank you that you are Emmanuel, God with us. You have come to dwell with your people. God, so this morning as we look at these words, as we hear the message of good news that comes with it great joy, I ask that you would give us eyes to see, hearts to receive. God, ears that are soft to your word. Lord Jesus, I ask that you would come by the spirit of revelation this morning 
and give us eyes of faith uh, to see how you're at work, even in the places where it's difficult to see or you are working in a way that we would not expect. God, I ask that you would knock off the familiarity of this story. God, that we would, we would stand with awestruck wonder at the reality of the word made flesh given as a son. God, would you come in your power? We ask in your name, the mighty name of Jesus, amen. Hey, so there's an experience that every human has, and I've been thinking a lot about it coming into this week, and I want to use the Christmas story this morning to help us uh, make sense of this experience. And the experience is something like this. It's all of the places where regularly in our lives, what we hope for, what we long for, what we expect, what we desire is meets face to face with reality. And reality is nothing like what we longed for or what we expected or what we hoped for. You know, I hope that this isn't the case for uh, many of the children in this room this morning, but tomorrow morning, there are opportunities for you to have expectations and desires for what you're gonna open under the Christmas tree in the morning that may not be in accordance with reality. I walk through this as a dad, you know, those moments where watching your children and they just want something to be true so bad. And they're, they're, they're working it over and trying whatever they can to make that thing happen. And you're standing there going, I got a lot more life experience than you. That's not the way it works. No matter how hard you try, you're not gonna make that happen. I have a fun story of this in my own life uh, that we like to laugh about, uh, my wife and I, Back when iPhones were just coming out, right? So uh, way back, like prehistoric times, like 2007 and 2008, uh, we didn't have very much money. And so iPhones are out and new and they're, they're these fancy offerings of you can have this computer in your pocket and you can be touched, you can touch the whole World Wide Web at any time and you know, walk around and you can read books on your phone and do all sorts of things. And I'm like, I, I desperately want this. But I don't have the money to afford one and so we're at the store one day and I try to approximate this by getting a touchscreen Blackberry or Palm Pilot or something like that, um, which for the next year and a half was the bane of my existence. <laughs> Everything I wanted that phone to do, it couldn't do. And so I just have this clunky, awkward, gross phone where everybody else is getting these like wonderful, elegant, glorious things. I'm like, Here's my Palm Pilot. <laughs> so what do you do when reality doesn't meet your expectations? I think this is a fundamental question that every person has to deal with at some point in their life. And the fundamental question begins to take on a lot more significance and meaning when we begin to relate it to the ways that God works in the world and the ways that how God works that they are rarely, if ever, in alignment with our preconceived expectations of how he should act, 
right? Rarely does the way that God work in our world line up with what we have brought into the moment in our expectations. And so this becomes a fundamental reality that every one of us has to deal with. What do we do in the places where what we long for and hope for and desire meets reality and reality does not, quote unquote, fulfill it in the way we thought it would? The Bible has a lot to say about this. In the Proverbs, uh, this is called heart sickness. The writer of the Proverbs says, when hope is delayed, right, with what we want, when our desires go unfulfilled, when our expectations do not get fulfilled by reality in the moment, the author says our hearts grow sick. And there's these temptations in these moments towards despair, towards offense, towards bitterness, Right? Do we grow bitter, offended in these moments? Do we strive harder like I did to try to make it work? Do we tell ourselves, hey, tough luck, that's just the way the world is. And we kind of move on and power through our lives. Look at letter B. This morning what I wanna do is look at the Christmas story, a story that's become so familiar to us. We have this temptation where this story becomes so over-familiar to us that we lose the power of what's happening. And I wanna use it as an example of what it means to have the eyes of faith required to see how God works, how to receive his work as good news, and how we have to, in the midst of these places, choose joy in the midst of our world. Or to say differently, what I want to do this morning is to look at the story of Jesus' birth, what, what, what we call the incarnation, as the antidote to despair, a message of good news and great joy that the angel declares to the shepherds for those who have eyes to see. So how I wanna do that this morning is, I want to tell the story again. I wanna situate the story, I wanna highlight some things from the story, and then I want to invite us in this Christmas season, what are some particular ways that we can uh, seek to see with the eyes of faith what God is at work doing? So let's look at the story. And the story of the incarnation at its heart is the story of God. It's the story of the world. It's the story of what God has been up to since the beginning, when he spoke everything into existence. Look at letter A. God created all things in accordance with his own purposes so that he might display his glory in all the world, right? His character, his nature, his essence. God desired to make known himself to uh, the creation. And so he created all things. The triune God existed forever in absolute joy, in contentment, in delight, in a glorious fellowship between the persons of the Godhead, in love and eternal satisfaction. He lacked nothing, he needed nothing, yet he desired something. He desired to share himself, that another 
might experience that same joy and fellowship and contentment and love. So because of that, letter B, he created the heavens and the earth as a grand theater upon which he might demonstrate his character. And he created a particular being with the unique capacity to know him and to delight in him, right? This is what it means in Genesis chapter one when it says mankind was created in the image of God. Means that we have the unique capacity among all creatures, all of creation, to share in fellowship with God according to his likeness. And then God took mankind and placed them in a garden of great delight created by him so that they might come close to him and relate with him in communion. And then from that place of communion, fill the earth and bring it under the righteous reign of the God most high. Right, so in in essence, what God is doing in creation in the first several chapters of Genesis is saying, come, commune with me and receive of all my fullness and then partner with me in my work to the ends of the earth, right? So we have this glorious purpose for which God has set out to create all things. And then it, almost as, as quickly as it begins, it breaks. Look at letter D. The man and the woman rebel against God and sin, listening to the voice of the serpent who declared that they could have everything that they wanted in their way, in their time, outside of God's good command. And then he declared to them that God was not in fact able or good enough to bring about his purposes. And in doing so, they send the world themselves and all who have come since then into a chaotic downward spiral that's been marked by sin, decay, destruction, and rebellion since that day. So we have this glorious purpose that mankind is created to commune with God and live in relationship with him and experience the joy-filled fellowship that he possesses in himself. And then this purpose is immediately fractured and broken and sin and wickedness and darkness are inserted into the world. These things that were foreign to God's creation are now everywhere before us. Letter E, yet from the first moments after the fall, God gave a promise to bring forth redemption from the seed of the woman. We see this in Genesis 3.15, almost immediately as the Lord is beginning to pronounce the effects, the cursing effects of this disobedience upon creation, he declares that the curses will not be the final word. And from the very beginning, he begins to promise there will be one day from the seed of the woman, from the loins of the woman, from the line of the woman, one who will come who will crush the head of the serpent and bring redemption and restoration to all mankind. A child that would come, destroy death, break the power of the curse, redeem sin and forgive it, 
and ultimately overturn death itself. However, this is a point that I want you all to catch. This is going to be the theme of our time together this morning. From the inception of that promise, the story began to unfold in ways that would not have been expected. No one would have written it this way. God's ways are not our ways. Isaiah 55, 8. His ways are not our ways. And his purposes were to unfold over millennia. At times, passing through long periods of silence and apparent inactivity. And at times, moving very quickly. Right? You get the stories of Abraham. God shows up and chooses a line and uh, narrows the focus and says, in your seed, in your uh, child that will come from you, I will bless all of the families of the earth. Right In the Exodus, after 400 years of silence where the people of God lived under the bondage of Egyptian slavery, wondering where God is, God breaks in and brings salvation and redemption to his people. Sometimes he dispenses new promises, right? Comes to David and he says, I'm going to bring a king forward from your line. He'll be like a son to me. He'll rule with righteousness and grace and peace for all eternity. We see the new covenant. But yet it did not happen in the way that anyone expected. So this would be essentially what was going on as we come to the story in Luke chapter two, the story of Christmas itself. At the time of the story that we read this morning, the people of God have lived in 400 years of silence. Malachi closes out the Old Testament prophetic voices and from the time of Malachi till the time of Jesus is 400 years where God has been silent. There is a famine of God's word among the people of God. And we're, we're breaking into that moment, much like the 400 years of slavery in Egypt. The people of God are living under an oppressive rule, waiting for the day when God would bring salvation and deliverance just like he promised he would. So many were the days when God's people would be tempted to grow bitter, that the promises of God were not coming in the way that they thought, to become offended, to despair, right? To say, where is the promise of his coming? Right, there's so many places in these seasons where the temptation grows among God's people to begin to despair and doubt and wonder, is God ever going to make good on his promise, right? When what we long for and what we desire and what we expect do not meet our perceived reality, what do we do? Do we despair? Do we grow bitter? Do we move on? Do we begin to doubt? Do we begin to wonder, where will God work? Letter I, it's into this silence that this story erupts. But again, unlike how many of us would have written it, 
It's full of the poetic marks and the obscurity of God's writing that we see throughout Scripture. Right? I want to highlight a few of these marks this morning. This is, this is God's poetry at work in, in this story unfolding. This is how God leads and acts and guides history. And we've seen it again and again. I just want to highlight several in this story particularly. Number one, first, he comes to a poor, obscure, insignificant virgin girl. He comes to her and says, from you, a child is going to come who will be the son of God, the most high, the one who has been promised to bring salvation and sit on the throne of the father David. He's going to come through you. And she goes, wait, how is this going to happen? I don't have a husband. I haven't known a man. One plus one does not equal two here. And God goes, the spirit is going to overshadow you, come upon you, and you will conceive this son. Okay, so Mary is poor and obscure. We know she's really poor because in Luke chapter two, when she offers the redemption price for the firstborn who, who, who comes from her womb, she offers two turtle doves, not the second day of Christmas. But she offers two turtle doves because she cannot afford the sacrifice that's required to redeem the firstborn son. She's too impoverished, right? So this poor, insignificant girl from obscurity is chosen to be the mother of the Lord Jesus, right? How this happens is odd to us. I mean, think of the scandal that ensues. If you don't think it's scandalous, go read Matthew chapter one, Joseph's account of it, right? Joseph finds out Mary's pregnant and what does he do? Exactly what we think he would do. He seeks to separate from her because she's perceived to be impure. She, is, she has been unfaithful to their betrothal. And I just want to, I, I want to catch this, right? Mary's, the Holy Spirit came to me and overshadowed me and I conceived, would have been believed by as many of you that would believe that if somebody used that as an excuse today. All right, if, if somebody showed up and they were like, no, 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 I, the Holy Spirit overshadowed me and I conceived a child, you would go, not buying it. The same thing happens. Joseph needs a dream with an angel showing up and going, no, 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 that was me. Because he didn't believe her. What, what evidence would you have to believe her? That's never happened in history up to that point, never happened since. He, he needed an angel to show up, right? This is how God does it. All right, go to page two. That's one. Secondly, notice the marks of God's sovereign leadership under Caesar Augustus. He's using him like a pawn in his hands. Caesar has this idea to take a census that moves the whole Roman world around. And God is 
using it to get the Messiah born in the exact place he said he would be. Micah 5.2, we heard it read this morning. But in a way that is remarkable to our natural minds. Again, when we think of God using his sovereign power to move nations around, why wouldn't he move someone to take away the Roman oppression? Right, if God has all sovereign power to do anything he wants, why wouldn't he just raise up somebody to overthrow the Roman oppression and move things around the way that it's supposed to? And God goes, I'm gonna do it in a way that is going to be completely unexpected to your minds. Caesar has this idea to take a census and the whole world moves around and I get exactly what I want. Third, the child who's been promised, called the son of the most high, the one that's gonna sit on David's throne, is born in absolute obscurity, laid in a manger, because there's no room for the family. Can you imagine Mary navigating the difference between expectations and reality in this moment? I mean, think of it, think of it this way. This is made up, of course, right? I can imagine Mary, right? The night of, she's about to give birth, they can't find a room, there's no place, and she goes, God, you conceived this child in me by a literal miracle. Never happened before, never ever happened. I mean, you did something totally unprecedented and you can't get us a room? I mean, seriously, right? You can't even get us a room? You can't move things around? You've moved the whole Roman Empire around through the census to get him right where you needed him. You couldn't have made somebody like go the wrong way and not show up for the room that they needed that night? It's unbelievable. Obscure, unknown, hidden. Fourth, the receiving party for the newborn king of glory are shepherds. They only believe because they've been given specific instruction by an angel that then is accompanied by the hosts of heavenly multitudes. I want you to catch this this morning. Mary... Joseph and some shepherds are here at the, at the manger, the receiving party of the Lord of all glory. To everyone else in the world, God is silent at that moment, right? They don't know how he's working. They don't understand that literally the eternal second person of the Godhead has clothed himself in flesh and come into the world. To anyone else in the world right now, the perception would have been God is silent. God is still being silent. The inbreaking of the Lord of glory at Christmas invites us to step back for a moment and understand the importance of seeing with eyes of faith experiencing the truth of hope in what God has promised, believing that he is who he says he is and that he will do or is presently doing exactly what he promised, even when it looks fundamentally different than what we think it should look like. This is what this story can fill us with faith toward. 
if we have eyes to see again this morning. Now, the difference between this expectation and reality, the fascinating thing about the life of Jesus is it doesn't stop here, right? It just keeps going this way all the way until the cross, right? Even so much, I have several, several ideas for you. I'm not going to go into any of them, but look at number four. John the Baptist, this continues in such a way that John the Baptist, the person who was told to go before the Lord to prepare his way. He got to see the heavens open, a dove descend upon Jesus, a voice declare, this is my son. He was told that when all that happens, this guy is the Messiah. John ends up in a prison and he still doubts. This is how unlike our leadership, God's leadership is that he's still tempted to doubt. He's still tempted to grow offended with the way that the Lord leads. And I love Jesus's declaration to John's disciples. Go read it in Matthew 11, one to six. After he tells John how he's supposed to interpret what's really going on, he says, blessed is the one who is not offended at me. Blessed is the one who does not become embittered and offended when I do not lead the way that you think I should. God continues to work this way even now. I think many in this room, even this morning, are in a place right in the middle where your life, where you're wondering how God can be at work in the midst of your circumstances. And if you aren't, you will be soon. Some wonder, how can a good God lead in the way that he does? Some wonder why God didn't show up in the way you had hoped or desired or pray, prayed for, right? And it's fascinating. These situations are almost always very particular to us, right? Our desires, our longings, and the places where those go unmet, right? There's some of you in the room, you, were, you wanted to be married and have a family, and you don't yet, right? Some of you are married, and it's harder than you expected it to be. It didn't, it's not going the way that you thought it would. You aren't the person you thought you were. They aren't the person you thought they were, and it's harder and more difficult than you expected, some of you in the room struggle. You long for children and you cannot have children. Some of you in the room are struggling with resentment at your children that you have been given from the hand of the Lord. Some in the room, God hasn't healed you yet and you're waiting for the day when he will touch your body and bring healing. Some of you are stuck in patterns of sin that you seem to not be able to break free from. Some just feel like God is far off. Why will he not come close to me? Why is he quiet? Why will he not speak? What we do in these moments define our spirituality, our walk with the Lord. Now I wanna look at then for the rest, rest of our time, how do we see at Christmas. And here's my invitation to you. Uh, I, I actually want to invite you all into something for the next several weeks. 
What you, what you may or may not understand is in the church calendar, Christmas does not end with Christmas, okay? Christmas actually begins the season of Christmas, right? In the Western world, we prep for Christmas through this like month long, like cookies and shopping and Christmas songs and decorations. And then we see Christmas day as the finish line. In the church calendar, Christmas is actually the starting line for 12 days of gazing upon the reality that Jesus has come to us as the greatest gift that's ever been given. And I wanna invite you for the next week and a half to actually reorient some of your life before God in a, in a couple ways that, that would re-engage this story in a particular way. So I wanna invite us to see differently at Christmas. I'm gonna give you a few of these and then we'll, we'll come to the table of the Lord together. Number one, I wanna invite you to meditate on the incarnation. I want you to come, maybe in, in, in a time of prayer before the Lord, take this story, take Matthew chapter one, read through them, behold the God of creation laying in helpless obscurity. And I want you to do so with this mindset. I want you to imagine looking at this baby and going, God at that moment was perfectly accomplishing his purposes. No matter what it, what it looked like to anyone, no matter how silent it looked, no matter how insignificant it looked, obscure it looked, God was perfectly accomplishing his purposes in that moment exactly on time, exactly how he wanted to. He wasn't late. He wasn't missing anything. He wasn't being too slow, like we would count slowness. Think of the deafening silence that most of the world could have claimed in the moment that God was speaking to the world in. The word of God made flesh and most of the world did not, quote unquote, hear it in that moment. Behold the most important thing happening in that moment, Emmanuel, God with us. So take some time, meditate on the incarnation. Second, ask the Lord to give you eyes of faith, right? To order, uh, rightly, uh, in order to rightly assess and evaluate the ways that God is at work in the world, we have to believe that his ways are not our ways and receive his way of thinking. Many of us wrongly, wrongly assess situations of our lives, our difficulty, our hardship, because we assess the world with our own presuppositions, right? We bring into the equation, this is how God should work, and when he doesn't, he's not being good. And we... we, we bring that into uh, the equation, our own beliefs. We have to receive God's truth, his word, his revelation, in order to see rightly. Okay, here's, here's an example. When my kids were young, 
This is a silly example, but we do this on a cosmic level with the Lord. When I would withhold something that they perceived as good, let's say unbelievable amounts of sugar. I'm just making this up. Yeah. I don't know where all of the sugar comes from. I feel like everyone's highest gift in life is giving my children sugar, which some of y'all are going, you give my kids sugar. So there we go. Okay. Uh, when I would go, no, 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 we can't have that right now. You have to eat your vegetables, right? If they do not trust my disposition towards them, they will become embittered to the perceived way that I am leading for their good, right? And so many of us do this with the Lord in our lives, right? We, we refuse to believe the truth of God's word as it's been revealed to us that he is good and he leads for our good and he is leading in such a way to bring forth our share in his own holiness. If we will receive that by faith and we go, we're angry that you won't give me the sugar that I want right now, whatever that proverbially is. We see him as evil or wicked. How could a good God not give that to me? What we have to do in those moments is ask him to see with his eyes, to understand and to know what he is at work doing. We have to replace our presuppositions with his word. Letter C, pray in your heart that tenderness would replace offense. So one of the most important places in our spiritual lives is these moments, right? When we long for something does not match God's reality. These places are essential to our spiritual health and our growth and how we walk through them will determine our maturity. When we face these, will we grow bitter and offended or will we lean into the Lord with greater dependence and maturity? Look at letter D, practice acceptance. This is a really difficult one. If you're walking in a place where you cannot see the, the how in the world this makes sense of God's pr purposes, promises, his ways in your life, one of the premier ways that we have to walk through that is through practicing acceptance. Uh, a famous missionary named Amy Carmichael used to say, in acceptance lieth peace, right? This accepting that God, the sovereign over all creation, sovereignly orchestrates every single place for us to walk through it with a posture of acceptance actually liberates our souls to lean into him in a posture of dependence and peace. Practicing acceptance is to turn away from despair on the one hand, which is the belief that nothing is ever going to change, right? Despairing is the opposite of hope. God will never do anything different here. That's despair. And it's to turn away from self-pity. And self-pity is just this. Self-pity is the belief that you're different than everybody else and it's harder for you than everybody else. 
That's the belief of self-pity. It's the great, you know, in counseling or when I, when I counsel people or walk with people, I, I do this too. It's the great, yeah, but, right? Like somebody says the truth to you and you go, yeah, that's true, but. And you've got your reason why it's not actually true for you or it's harder for it to be true for you or something along those lines. That's self-pity. Acceptance fights against both of those things. Letter E, choose joy. This Christmas season, choose joy. That's what it means to rejoice, right? Choosing joy isn't sentimental. It's not putting a smiley face over your hardship. However, it is choosing to delight in God's truth. It's choosing to say, I'm gonna take God at his word no matter what, and I am going to delight in that even in the places where I can't see that to be fully true. I'm going to choose to cherish that, to delight in it. Look back at these truths, right? The, 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 the shepherds receive this declaration that the message they're getting is good news for all mankind of great joy. You have something to rejoice in. Whether or not you feel that right now, God has not been silent. He came into the world. He stepped into our story. He took upon himself a human frame. He lived in this world. We have something to delight in. There are truths that we can enjoy and receive and celebrate this Christmas no matter how far they feel from us. That's what it means to rejoice. I choose to delight in the truth of God's word no matter where I am. Lastly, even as we come to the table together, look at the cross Look at the cross this Christmas season. The reason that the Son of God came into the world is to give of himself, to lay down his life as a ransom for many, for any and all who will look to him by faith. Looking at the cross is the place where God was accomplishing his purposes in the greatest manner, yet in a way that no one would have expected, in a way that looked like he was defeated in absolute, utter humiliation and perceived shame. The place where it looked like he was silent, where he was losing, where he was defeated, was the precise place where he was freely offering up himself for the sins of the world and opening the door to salvation for any and all who would receive him by faith. Any and all that would take that message and lay hold of it by faith, he was opening the door wide. In the precise moment where it looked like he was defeated, he was providing salvation for any and all. So this morning, as we come to the table, we're going to remember this. Would you stand with me?
This morning, we're gonna give thanks. We're gonna celebrate. We're going to choose to delight in the truth that God has come into our world, that he's made a way of salvation, that he's opened wide a door for any and all who will receive him to come and fellowship with him, to live in life with him, to have communion with him. If that is your hope, you're a Christian and we wanna invite you to come and take this meal with us. The way we take communion here at Redeemer is you tear a piece of the bread off, you dip it into the cup. We have wine in the stoneware, juice in the glassware. We're gonna have a servers right here in the front, in the middle. We'll have them in both sides of the balcony and a allergy-free, gluten-free station down here to my right. If you're in the room this morning and you don't put your faith in Jesus, we're really glad you're here with us. We, we, we hope that you experience the life-giving presence of the truth of God's word in our service this morning. We wanna ask that you not come take this meal. This meal is a signifier of another reality, that we believe in Jesus, that we receive his gift of salvation through his broken body and his shed blood. We would invite you to receive Jesus this morning, to look at him, to call upon him, to uh, ask him to open your eyes to receive. But for those who are coming, we're gonna come and receive with joy and celebration this morning. I'm gonna pray for us. We're gonna sing together. We're gonna come to the table. And as we do every Sunday, we have people that would love to pray with you and pray for you. Father, this morning, we thank you again for the gift given in Christ Jesus. We thank you that you humbled yourself. You did not consider equality with God as something to be held onto for your own advantage, but you took all that you had and you laid down your life. God, you came to our world. God, we thank you. We remember this morning the gift of the coming of Jesus. God, would you give us eyes of faith this morning? I ask that you would fill our hearts with joy this morning. Would you strengthen us and stabilize us according to your word in your name? Come and feed us this morning by faith, even as we come and look once again upon our crucified Messiah, the one who laid down his life freely. We love you. We pray in your name. Amen.